Father, it is amazing for us to be able to come together and to talk to the one who created the heavens and the earth, who was there, who spoke creation into existence, uh, who created humanity, who created us individual and unique in every way. God, you gave us value. When we were born and when we were formed in our mother's womb, you created us, Lord, and you gave us value and you have a purpose and a plan for our lives. You have a purpose and a plan for our families and for our church. And we thank you on this Christmas morning that you have made yourself known to us, God, not only in creation, but also through your son, Jesus. You showed us, Lord, that there was a creator God. You showed us that there was a God who made and who created everything around us, the beauty of creation. And then you showed us specifically who you were by way of bringing your son into the world and showing us what and who your character is and what it is that you value. And you gave us a, a purpose and a plan through your son, Jesus. You revealed the hope. You revealed the love. You revealed uh, joy. You revealed um, these things to us so that we might know how to have a personal relationship with you, God, in heaven. You showed us why we are who we are, why we are so broken, why we see sin in our own individual lives and in the lives of so many around us and around the world. And you gave us a reason, an understanding of why that was the case because of our brokenness. And then you showed us our need. And Lord, we thank you for providing the solution. And this morning, we thank you this morning uh, for this gathering. And we are here today, God, to worship you. And we've done so through music. We've done through, so through our hearts. And we want, Lord, your word uh, to wash over us. We want your word to teach us. We want your word to speak to us on this Christmas morning. And God, help us to be receptive. Help us to have our ears open, our hearts open to the things you want to say to us, Lord. And so would you bless us during this time? Would you bless us with your word? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want you to take your Bibles today and I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We've read this verse and we've read these verses, these two verses, uh, over the course of the last month um, on a couple particular occasions. And these two verses are oftentimes read during the Christmas season. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Um, but on this day, we're going to unpack those two verses. In fact, we're going to really unpack really one of those because they're so pregnant with meaning and the significance of what, uh, of what it is that, that we're doing on this morning. You ever seen an iceberg? You know what an iceberg is? A picture of an iceberg? Not probably literally. Some of you may have taken cruises in Alaska and you've seen that before. But, but most of us have just seen pictures of icebergs. You know, the nature of an iceberg is such that when you look at the iceberg, you see the tip of the what? Ice. But you don't see what's underneath the surface. And that's oftentimes when you come to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. As we saw last night in John chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, we, we tend to just glaze over these verses and these words, and they mean, they have significance, significant meaning, but when we really dig into the meaning, it's an amazing thing to understand and see. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look this morning at verses 6 and 7. Let me read those for us this morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. You see it there. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You ever receive bad news? Some of you might receive bad news that's accompanied with good news. So bad news is if somebody, your doctor comes to you and says, you've got cancer. But then, you know, the good news is sometimes accompanied with the bad news. Whereas someone says to you, you've got cancer, but then another doctor comes to you maybe a few weeks later after they've done treatment and says your cancer's in remission or your cancer has disappeared altogether or we've been able to find the tumor and remove it. You know, bad news is when you hear that, uh, that folks... Uh, someone has been involved in a very horrific car accident, then that good news then comes after that sometimes with the bad news as in when you say that someone here, you hear that bad news that is accompanied with the good news that we walked away from the accident, right? There's good news and there's bad news all the time in our lives, right? What's going on here in this story is that the king of Israel, the king actually of Judah, his name is Ahaz, has received some really, really bad news, Okay, he's received some really bad news. In fact, here's the, here's the story leading up to Isaiah chapter 9 so you understand what's going on here. You see, the nation of, of God's people has been split at this point. We've been in Joshua on Sunday mornings, and so you're used to the idea that when God's people left Egypt, they came into the, prom, or they came into the wilderness, they inevitably make it to the promised land. And as we're walking through Joshua on this front end of Joshua uh, in the first few chapters, we're looking at the fact that God has brought God's people, his people, into the promised land and is bringing them into the promised land. But you see, there's going to be a day when that second generation is going to flip to the third generation and that third generation of God's people who forget and they forget all that God has done for them and through them. And they're going to begin to inevitably follow their own heart like we oftentimes do, don't we? And they're going to begin to follow their own way again. And so that's inevitably what's going to happen. And in the history of Israel, if you know the history of Israel, the people of Egypt who are enslaved end up in the wilderness, who inevitably end up in the promised land. God gives them everything. He gives them rest. He gives them life. He gives them peace, right? He gives them uh, the blessing that he has promised Abram all the way to where they are. But then inevitably when they begin to follow their own heart and they begin to follow other nations around them, then things begin to fall apart. And that's what's happened here and we kind of parachute, if you will, into Isaiah chapter 9. That's what's happened. God's people have chosen to follow their own way, and inevitably what happens is the nation who is one splits into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. And the northern kingdom has long since walked away from the Lord. They do the religious things. They follow God's you know, ways. They follow his rituals. They do all the things that, that they think are, are pleasing God, and yet at the same time, they're following other gods. They're following their own way. And inevitably, they're, they're drifting and further and further away from God. They're so corrupt to the point where that there is this, this nation, if you will, this civilization called the Assyrians that are going to threaten those in the northern kingdom. As they threaten there in Israel, God's people, God is actually raising up the Assyrians to, to bring judgment on his own people. So what do they do? Instead of turning to God like they should and, and, and confessing and repenting of their sin, what do they do? They turn to the Syrians. 
and they say, well, listen, I wanna, we want to make an alliance with you and so that you can protect us from the mean, bad Assyrian army. And so that's what's happened. All the while, the southern kingdom, Judah, is led by a king by the name of Ahaz, which is what this story is about and what's going on around it. What happens inevitably is that the northern kingdom, who is now in alliance with Syria, instead of just protecting themselves from the Assyrians, they turn their sight on the southern kingdom, on their own countrymen. And they're going to fight and they're going to attack their own countrymen in the southern kingdom. The king of Israel sends word to Ahaz in the south. says, we're coming for you. We're coming to attack you. We're coming to destroy you. Our own kin, our own countrymen. And that's the bad news that King Ahaz receives. In fact, back in chapter 7, verse 2, this is what's happened leading into chapter 9. In chapter 2, it says this. I'm sorry, in chapter 7, it says this in verse 2. Um, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz, the king of Israel, or king of Judah, is scared to death. He's scared to death because of what is about to happen. But you see, God is not somehow distracted. God is not, the Lord is not somehow distracted in the sense that he doesn't hear and know what's going on. No, God knows everything that's happening. He sees the future, he sees the past, he sees the present, and so God sends word to Ahab and says, listen, you need to have faith in me and believe in me. In fact, this is what God says to Ahaz. He says, it's all gonna be fine. I'm gonna destroy uh, Syria. I'm going to defeat the northern kingdom and things are going to go well for you if you'll truly trust me. And this is what he says to Ahaz. He says this, ask for a sign. Ask for a sign to prove that I am trustworthy, God says to Ahaz. And you know what the Lord says and does? Look at chapter seven, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Does that sound familiar? You see, in that day, Ahaz receives this sign. He receives this, this word, this prophecy, if you will, from, from Isaiah that things are going to go well, and this is the sign that things are going to go well for you, that God is going to pre present this and, and produce this sign. He's going to present this, this sign. But you see, Ahaz in that day didn't fully understand the significance of the sign. In fact, he was confused. He, he was expecting and didn't understand all of this, and he focused on the immediate threat. He focused on the, the threat to the north, but he certainly could not see into the future. But the Lord had bigger things in mind. The Lord had bigger things planned for what he was going to do. And there, beginning in chapter 9, as we just read, there, beginning in chapter 9, God begins to, to do for Isaiah, what he could not do for himself. He looked to, Isaiah looks to a future time, a time where there is no more gloom, a time where there is no more suffering. And he saw a people who walked with God. He saw a people that, a nation that was increasing. He saw a people, he saw a nation that, he, that, that was great, where there was great freedom, where there was great liberation from the oppression 
and bringing ultimate victory. Not victory over a human oppressor, but victory over something deeper, significantly deeper spiritually. The question is, who's going to bring an end to all of this? And of course, on this Sunday morning, on this Christmas morning, we worship Jesus, who is God's grace to sinners. You see, the reality is in Isaiah chapter 9, we understand that Jesus is that God. He is God's grace to us. And he saw his people just as he sees you and I this morning. He saw his people in this, this state of, of, of anguish. He saw this, his people in this state of, of, um, uh, of isolation and of aloneness. And, and God stepped in and he provided a savior. And so God the Father gave his greatest gift to every sinner both to his people then and to us this morning. We have the benefit of being on this side of understanding who this Messiah is. We have the benefit of being on this side of understanding who Jesus is and all that he did to fulfill this incredible prophecy. And so I want you to see in these two verses as we unpack them this morning, verse six and verse seven, just how God has explained and and revealed his grace to us on this Christmas day. So I want you to notice with me in the text, look at verse six again. We're just gonna unpack these two verses quickly this morning and then we'll be done today. But look at verse six with me again. I want you to see how God's grace is seen in the nature of Jesus because Jesus fulfills all of verses six and seven. He is this sign that God promises Ahaz. We see God's grace in the nature of Jesus. Verse six says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The prophet Isaiah looks ahead. He talks about this sign as though it has already happened, but do you know when this sign will happen? Do you know when this prophecy will be fulfilled? 714 years from the moment in which Isaiah prophesies and writes those words. 714 years, Jesus is going to be born in a manger in Bethlehem, and he's going to fulfill everything of verse 6. 714 years, almost twice as old as our nation. Isaiah, from God, is given this incredible prophecy, and we see this grace that is poured out in the nature of Jesus. Listen, he is a child who was born. He is the Messiah who is fully man. Yes, he is a Messiah. He is God in the flesh, and God takes on human nature, right? He takes on uh, our, our, our flesh, and then he dwells among us, right, as we saw last night. He is a child who was born, yes, but he is a son who is what? Look at the text. Given. He was given. We understand that the Father gave the Son to us. This is God in the flesh, So he is a child who was born, he is a son who was given, and this is the amazing nature of Jesus Christ. When you think about a baby lying in the manger, we typically think of, when we think of a baby lying in a manger, what? We think of our own children. You think about the baby, a baby, maybe a grandchild, a grandson or a granddaughter or your own child, and you think of your own child, and what do you think of when you think of a child? You think of innocence, you think of beauty, you think of helplessness, you think of purity, child hasn't done anything, right? Wrong. He hasn't done anything to hurt anyone. You think of the helplessness, if you will, of that child. You think of the cute nature of a child, of a baby lying in a manger. But listen, this is the measure, the greatness of God. This is no ordinary baby. This is no ordinary child. And so when you think of the manger, I want you to remember, listen, the humiliation of what God has done. God takes and leaves heaven and he comes to you and I. This is no ordinary baby. 
Yes, he's incredibly cute, and yes, he is incredibly helpless, if you will, but this is God in the flesh who humbles himself before us. I read the verse last night. I'll read part of it again and expand upon it, but it's in Philippians chapter 2. The apostle Paul is thinking about this. He's, he's, he's reflecting upon this understanding, and this is what it says. Verse 6 of chapter 2, Philippians. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I'll back up and look at verse 6. Who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself. God empties himself from heaven. Listen, church. He empties himself and comes in the form of a servant, a baby. And there he is lying in a manger, and he's emptied himself listen, he empties himself, listen, so he can fill us. See, why does he do all of that? Why does God do what he does? Why does Jesus do what he does in order to fill us and to fill us with the things that he has promised us? And here is God who was designed and he was placed here in this place. He's no limitations. He subjects himself to all that we experience. He's born the, the, the way he was. He's born in a stable God subjects himself to, hung, to, to hunger. Think about this. He subjects himself to hunger. He subjects himself to thirst. He subjects himself to all that we experience. Homelessness, if you will, betrayal, we see in the scriptures. Rejection, we see fatigue, we see suffering. God who takes on flesh and subjects himself to all of that. Stress, abandonment, all of those things. That's the baby lying in the manger and that is a picture of the grace of God. Humiliating himself, he empties himself in order to fill us. He is a son who is given. We know John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He empties himself by, by being given to us what a gift of grace. And so listen, we see the grace of God in the nature of Jesus. As Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, we also see the grace of God, not only in the nature of Jesus, but in the authority of Christ, the authority of Jesus. I mean, look at, the, look at verse 6 in the beginning of verse 7 again, and this is what it says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and what does it say about him? The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and look at, look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This speaks of authority. Jesus is no cute little baby lying in a manger. He is, has all authority. I mean, there's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. It speaks of the fact that God has what is going to send his son into the world. Jesus has come. The Messiah has come. But it also says the Messiah is coming again. We sit here between both of those two truths. Jesus has come, and he's been resurrected, but he's coming again. And we sit here in light of that truth. We worship in light of the truth. We show up and we serve, and we serve in the nursery. We, we serve and we go and tell people about Jesus Christ. Why do we do these things? We don't do them to make ourselves feel good and feel more religious. We do it in light of the reality and the hope and the truth and the conviction that Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming again. And that gives us hope. 
When we find out we have cancer, or when we find out someone who we love so dearly has passed away so suddenly and unexpectedly, when we have to deal with the sorrow, when we have to deal with the stuff that, that we don't have any control over, and we look around the world and we see the chaos and all of these things, we understand that Jesus is coming again. There is hope. Jesus is the one who has authority over all of these things. The king has come, but the king is coming again. You see, in Isaiah's day, Judah's leaders were incompetent to lead God's people. Even the best of his leaders, even the best of God's people and his leaders were marked with failure. Every one of them. The bad ones certainly were, but the good ones as well. They continued to do good things for God's people, but inevitably they would fail. Every leader fails at some level to measure up to the expectations that God has for them. There is only one perfect king, church. There's only one perfect king that we worship and that, we, that is worth following, that is worth dying for, that is worth living for. It's King Jesus. And we understand that as we look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse uh, 6 and in verse 7. There's certain characteristics to his kingdom. Look at it. He carries it alone. It says he alone carries and has the government upon his shoulders. He carries it alone. There's only one who can be king. It's his shoulders. He carries the title, yes, but he also carries the burden. I mean, think about our world and think about the brokenness of our world. Think about the brokenness even of our nation. Think about the brokenness of our community. Think about the brokenness of sometimes even in your extended family. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's even in your life. Think about the brokenness, and yet God, Jesus himself, carries all of that burden. He carries that burden, you know what, without complaining about it. You ever meet a leader sometimes that sometimes complains? We all do. But you see, Jesus carries this burden, and he carries it without complaining. I mean, it's unlike what Moses did. Remember Moses way back in, in Exodus chapter, or I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 11? God's given him all of this authority. He's leading his people, God's people, out of Egypt. And Moses has this group of people that God has done all these great things, these powerful things, these amazing things. He splits the Red Sea apart. He has all of these signs in Egypt, and God's people are there. They have eyewitness to all of these things. And what do they inevitably begin to do? Complain. Take us back to Egypt. And Moses is like, what am I going to do with these people? They've seen God, you move. Why won't they trust you? And, and God says, and Moses rather starts to complain. He complains about all that he's experiencing. It says, Moses said to the Lord in Exodus, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 11, said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all the people upon me? I mean, even Moses complained to the Lord. He struggled with that. But listen, Jesus, understanding in Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus didn't complain. Jesus, rather, continued to have this authority upon it. Not only does his, is his authority and does he carried it alone, only Jesus can be king, but his authority is increasing. See that in chapter seven, verse 7? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there what? Will be no end. It's going to be multiplied. His kingdom's going to grow. There, is no, there are no boundaries. I mean, when you look at a president or you look at a prime minister, or you look at a king or you look at a queen today, there's a boundary to their authority. But there is no boundary to the authority of Jesus. He is over all things. He is over all nations. He is over all people. If the Lord Jesus Christ does not return in the next 50, 80, 100 years, all of us are gone 
And a thousand years from now, if Jesus Christ is not returned again, guess what? This world will look different, but Jesus Christ will still be king of it. And no matter what this nation looks like, no matter what the world looks like, no matter how many nations are on the earth, by then, Jesus will still be king, and he will be the same king as he is today, as he was 2,000 years ago, as he was 1,000 years ago, as he was 500 years ago. Jesus doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the king of all things, and that is God's grace. We look at our lives, and we see the personal issues Some of those things are so big and they're so complex, but Jesus is the one who has all of that authority and it's continuing to increase. He subjected himself. Think about this. If I want to have a cup of coffee with the president, that's likely not going to happen. If I want to have a cup of coffee with my congressman, Or just show up in Washington and go and say, hey, I'd like to sit down with a few senators. Probably not going to happen. But think in terms of this, the one who has authority over all things, Jesus himself makes himself available to you and I this morning. The one who's more important than the president of the United States, whatever political party he belongs to, the one who's over all of our Congress, who's over every prime minister and chancellor around the world, who's over every particular leadership group and authority group, is the one that you and I can have a personal relationship and have access to this morning. God makes himself available to us in the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. That's God's grace. We see God's grace in his nature. We, of course, see it in his authority, but I want you to see finally his grace in his character. I mean, this is what Isaiah goes to now. He speaks of his character. He speaks of the character of who this Messiah would be. Notice Jesus is not mentioned in these two verses, but what Isaiah is pointing to is the reality that you and I worship and the reason we're even here this morning on this Christmas morning. We look at the character of Jesus of Christ, the second half of verse 6. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You see his character. You see the titles of who Jesus is, and these titles reveal the nature of his character. He is Wonderful Counselor. He certainly is wonderful, isn't he? In fact, that word, if you look at it and study that word, it means extraordinary. He is extraordinary. The Messiah who Jesus would be, this baby lying in a manger, is extraordinary. You see it in his ways. He is our creator. He is our intercessor. He's actually praying for you and I this morning. He is our savior. He is our creator. He is the one who prays for us. He is the one who saves us. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? That's wonderful. But you couple that with the idea that he is also counselor. He's the one who gives us wise advice and counselor, counsel. I mean, by, by him, God gives us wisdom and counsel. By him, he personifies what wisdom is. We can read the Bible. You can read what truth is. But he is the one who personifies what truth is. When you want to know how to apply the truth that you read in the scriptures, look to Jesus and how he lived, how he spoke, how he interacted, how he experienced suffering and struggle in his own life and how he reacted to that space. He is the one who counsels us by way of his life, by way of his words, by way of how we are to think and live our lives because he is the perfect man. He is a wonderful counselor. Jesus is God's wisdom from the Father to you and I. 
But he's not just wonderful counselor, he's also mighty God, isn't he? I mean, he's mighty God. And so he is, it literally says, God, the mighty one. When you literally look at the original language there and you understand that phrase, he is not just mighty God, he's God the mighty one. He's wide, but wise, but he carries strength, church. He carries that strength within him. He is a mighty warrior who goes to battle to conquer enemies, the ultimate enemy in our life. He is mighty God. He is wonderful counselor, but he's also everlasting father. He's the father of eternity. He is the source of all things. In John chapter 14, listen to what it says. In John chapter 14, these are, these are the words of Jesus to his own disciples in the upper room right before he goes to the cross. And it says in chapter 14 in verse 7, this is what Jesus says. Uh, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip, who's one of the disciples, looks at him and says, show us the father and it is enough for us. After all that Jesus had done for them. But Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his words. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He is everlasting Father. And from the very beginning, God has done and has this plan. It isn't a plan that he somehow concocted several years into creation. This was always God's plan. God is one in every way, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he comes and shows us himself to us. He shows himself to us in every way. We wait with patience on that one day when Jesus Christ is going to return again. Romans chapter 8, verse 25 says this, he says, um, or the Apostle Paul says, but if we hope we, uh, for, for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait in patience for this Father, our everlasting Father, to send his Son again, Jesus himself coming and to take us to heaven. And he's also not only everlasting Father, but he's Prince of Peace, of course. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, Isaiah prophesies of Jesus and says he is not only wonderful counselor, uh, a mighty God, but everlasting father, but a prince of peace. Well, what does peace imply? I mean, peace implies an end of a war. You know, long for peace in your family, long for peace in your home, long for peace maybe in your marriage. You long for the end of a war, the battle, the fighting. Listen, peace has come on a general level through Jesus, right? There is a peaceful and a blessed life. But God gave us peace. He, give, he gives us peace. He comes to make peace. God the Father made peace between us and him. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this very thing. God brought peace between himself and you and I. That's the kind of peace that God brings ultimately. And so understand this, that when you look at the manger and you remember the manger with Jesus who was born in this world, it is a declaration of war against sin, against brokenness, 
and he comes to bring peace between us and God the Father. You see, in God's word, we're gonna come across bad news. And I think about the bad news we receive. We receive it, of course, in Romans chapter three. Listen to these words. I mean, this is some bad news on a Christmas morning. None is righteous, no one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, even on my best day, I added that. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known, even though we try. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he goes on to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's some pretty bad news. But you see, the story doesn't end there, does it? Because you see, we receive the bad news, but we also receive the bad news with the good news. And the good news of God, that he, told, he spoke through Isaiah all the way some 700 years before that became a reality in Bethlehem that would ultimately become a reality in Jerusalem when Jesus Christ would go from the grave to the cross, I'm probably sorry, from the, uh, from the birth to the cross, and then ultimately in the grave and from the grave, is that Jesus Christ has come to save us from ourselves. And so how do you respond to the great grace of God? Well, you certainly don't cheapen it. We certainly don't cheapen it in the sense that I just believe that it happened and then go on and live my life and to live the way I want to live my life. Well, I certainly don't ignore it. I don't ignore his grace. No, here's what I do. I treasure it. I treasure it. And as a Christian on this Christmas morning, I treasure the grace of God because God brings us with this gift. He brings this gift to me. If I'm not a Christian, I understand that what God did in the cradle that inevitably led to the cross has inevitably led to a crown. And that crown that Jesus carries, that crown that Jesus wears, is because if that is God's plan to you and I. And how do I respond to the grace of God? Well, I treasure it. The Bible says that if I surrender my life to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that if I turn my heart over to Jesus and I believe in him and I turn away from my sins and I start to follow him with my life and I invite him into my life to become the Lord and Savior of my life, the Bible says I can be saved. That's what I do with the grace of God. That's what I do on this Christmas morning. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. And I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. And they're going to lead us in a song. Listen, on this Christmas morning, I'm going to offer this opportunity. This altar will be open. If you want to come and pray here at the front, you can come and pray. If you want to just come and pray with me, I'll be happy to pray with you over a particular matter. And listen, if you want to come and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, or if you want to come and join our church, or if you want to come and maybe God has sp- spoken to you in recent weeks about being baptized or turning away from area of sin in your life, listen, you come. God's invitation is open to you and I, as Christians and as non-Christians. God's invitation is open to you. And so let's worship him. Let's respond to his word because we never, ever leave his word without responding to it. 
So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with his word? Christian, what are you going to do with his word? Non-Christian, what are you going to do with his word? Because the whole meaning of Christmas is that God has revealed himself to you and me. And he didn't just reveal himself to you so that you could look at him. He revealed himself to you through his word that you would respond to him, come to him. He's done all the work. He's done all the work. He just wants you to surrender and follow him fully with your heart. I'm going to pray, and we're going to stand, and we're going to sing. And let's worship him, and let's respond to him. God, we thank you for the great gift of your son. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the incredible grace that you've poured out upon our lives. Grace that we cannot earn, grace that we do not deserve. But on this Christmas morning, we thank you for it, and we receive it. And so we pray that, Lord, we would treasure your grace today, and we would respond to it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me and sing, and let's worship him.